Hi, welcome to After the Crisis with Victoria. On this podcast, we talk about stress, trauma, plain old bad days, and how those events impact the way in which we walk through the world. Everyone needs to be heard, and I am here to listen. Together, we will find realistic, healthy ways to turn our setback into a comeback. If you're a person who has ever endured difficult times, which have left you feeling disconnected from your authentic self, a little bruised, or even a little broken, this podcast is for you. Hi, everybody. My name is Victoria English Martin, and thank you for visiting my podcast, After the Crisis with Victoria. I have a really exciting guest today. Her name is Jennifer Whitaker, and I'll tell you a little bit about her. Jennifer is an empowerment strategist, a trauma specialist, and podcaster who is skilled at helping her clients move beyond self-sabotaging habits and knee-jerk reactions that keep them stuck and feeling lost. Jennifer has the education and, more importantly, the life experience to help her clients move through their dark nights of the soul. Having spent too many years spinning her own wheels, Jennifer understands how jagged and knotted it is when you feel lost, overwhelmed, and like an imposter. For years from the outside looking in, Jennifer appeared to be successful, balanced, and happy. On the inside, however, she was imploding and on the brink of suicide. Through trial and error, Jennifer managed to heal the wounds that led to her internal suffering, and she created an empowerment strategy program to help others who find themselves in the same stuck place she used to be. Jennifer also hosts the Yes And podcast, where she and her guests challenge conventional thinking on what healing really entails and how to keep moving forward in life. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Victoria. It's an honor to be on your show. Well, it was an honor to meet you a few months ago when you graciously had me on your show. Yeah. And after we stopped recording, you shared a bit of your story. I said to Jennifer, I said, so I'm guessing when you were a little girl and someone asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up, you didn't say either a ballerina, a mermaid, or a trauma specialist. <laughs> <laughs> no, none of those things. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I wondered, and Jennifer was kind enough and vulnerable enough to share with me a little bit about her background. And Jennifer, if you're comfortable, I would love for you to just share with our listeners a little bit about how you arrived where you are today. Okay, sure. And Victoria, before I start, I will be honest, I don't remember specifically what I shared with you that day because <laughs> doing what I do, I feel like I share my story so much mm-hmm. um, that I, I forget what I told to whom. Okay. So a bit about me and a bit about my story. I was born and raised in a really dysfunctional family as were many of us in the world, both of my parents by today's standards would be considered abusive in very, very different ways. My father was probably the more tolerant of the two until it got to like a critical mass within him and then he couldn't handle his own emotions. And then there would be these explosions of anger and rage, you know, these outbursts. And then everything would go back to okay. And then there would be another explosion, but timing between the two was really hard to predict. 
So my sister and I, there were only two of us, we learned at a very, very early age to walk on eggshells. My mother was more passive aggressive. And from the outside looking in, again, people thought that we had this happy little family and that my mom was this wonderful person. What people outside of the household didn't see was the things that my mother would say to me. Mm -hmm. And she would make biting little comments that only you could hear. Mm. And then if it got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore and I would speak up and I would say something, then I was the spoiled little brat. I was the, you know, the unruly child. I was the bad kid. And from, I had colic as an infant. So from the time I was born, I was the bad kid in the family. I was labeled as bad instead of noticing that I had colic and, you know, that that's a physical condition. Mm -hmm. It's also what we've learned over the years in studying trauma. We've learned that trauma is a physical manifestation in infants of stress in the household. Mm -hmm. Because as an infant, the part of us that's conditioned out of us by the time we get to adulthood, I call it our spidey sense, <laughs> that part that can feel what's happening in the room. I think Everybody at some point in life has had the experience of walking into a room where two people are sitting there with smiles on their face going, hi, Victoria, come in. You're welcome. Come sit down and talk to us. And as you walk in the room, Victoria, you can feel that there was just an argument that something's not right and you can cut the tension with a knife. Yes. I think we've all had that experience where what somebody say is, says is not how it feels. Well, for infants, they don't have that cognitive ability to, to say, well, what you're saying doesn't make sense. It does, all they have online is that feeling. Mm -hmm. So they can sense the stress in the room. They can sense the anger in the room. They can sense the sadness because we do put off our emotions and that comes through in our electromagnetic field. And I can get into a little bit about the science of how that works if you want me to. But what's more important is what the infant picks up on. So if the mother is incredibly stressed, the infant is also going to be stressed. And anytime there's a digestive issue, which colic is a digestive issue, you can almost guarantee that there is stress involved. And I would say, take almost out of that phrase, you can guarantee there's stress involved when there's a digestive issue. Mm. So I was labeled a bad kid from day one. As I grew, as I got older, my mother developed cancer. She was diagnosed when I think I was nine or 10 years old, mm -hmm. somewhere in that time frame. And she used to tell me that I was the reason she had cancer. I was such a bad kid. And if I had just behaved better, she wouldn't have been sick. People would come to visit us when she was sick. They would come visit her. And she would point at me and say, look at her. Look at how she's acting. She's going to be the death of me. And then when I was 13 and a half, she died. So the emotional burden that I have carried through most of my life, mm -hmm. you know, and again, that's a pretty big trauma to lose your mother. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, to carry on my shoulders that I'm such a bad person. That's why I lost my mother. Yes. And, you know, to have her point that out to me and then to realize, you know, in adulthood, like, oh, my God, she scapegoated me. And then there's that realization, you know, it's like I, I had this moment of what a bitch, <laughs> like, look what she right. did. you know, it's like, oh my God. And right. So going through all of the emotional stuff 
and I have several stories that I could, you know, talk about. Right. And it doesn't have to be a big trauma. I had also a lot of instances in childhood where from the adult's perspective, there was no trauma, no abuse, no intention. So for example, another scenario that has stayed with me my whole entire life that was just overwhelming. My dad's an entrepreneur and he's owned his own business for as long as I can remember in my lifetime. I don't ever remember him working for somebody else other than himself. Mm -hmm. And some of his employees, you know, I grew up around his business and he had a tire shop when I was a little girl. So, you know, I had a relative and the man who was my future brother-in-law, he wasn't my brother-in-law at that point. He was there, you know, a neighbor that just lived out the road. I'd known them my whole life, grew up in the mm-hmm. country. So they don't live down the street. They live out the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I, get it. I grew up in a really rural area. Uh-huh. So, you know, a close knit community, everybody knew everybody. And these folks were like, family to me. And I was in the tire shop one day and they told me a dirty joke. And it was a joke that was really inappropriate to tell little kids. And the joke was, they told me, you know, they asked me if I'd ever heard the story of the oo bird. I didn't know what this was. I'm sure maybe some of the listeners have because it's a joke that's circulated for years. And I said, no, you know, I was like five when they told me this or six, maybe I wasn't very old. That's what I was about to ask. How old were you? Five or six? Yeah, I was really little, like five or six years old. I was really little. Oh. So they told me the story of this oo bird and they said that it was a bird, you know, that flew around and it had really big balls. And every time it would go to land, it would say, ooh, ooh, that was the noise it made because its balls would bounce off of things. And they just rolled on the floor and they laughed and they laughed and, you know, and they were having a good time, you know, telling me this story. I didn't understand. And what I understood about birds And, you know, people getting together and laughing and having a good time and acting like that. The only experience I'd ever had was like at basketball games at the local high school. And Mm -hmm. our mascot at the high school was a golden hawk. And so I remembered seeing this picture of the golden hawk painted on the wall. And so my mind goes to the mascot and I like to draw. So the first thing was, oh, I'm going to draw a picture of this thing because it seemed really important to them. So I drew a picture and then I ended up deciding I was going to do it like the mascot and draw it on the wall. And oh my gosh, I got in trouble again. Not only did they laugh when they saw this picture that I had drawn of a bird, you know, with these big balls. Yeah. Not only did they laugh, they rolled on the floor laughing. And to any adult in that situation, that would be friggin' hilarious. I got in trouble Oh my gosh, the trouble I got in with my father was absolutely ridiculous. These guys were rolling around on the floor with tears coming out of their eyes, laughing at the situation, and nobody helped me understand. So Mm -hmm. I was completely overwhelmed with shame and humiliation in that moment. And that was the first time in my life where I realized that shame was not confined in my household and for a five-year-old to understand. And I didn't cognitively understand shame and humiliation. Mm -hmm. I emotionally felt it. So on that physical felt sense in your body, that Mm -hmm. feeling of shame, it's almost like you're falling and you can't catch yourself. That yes, that feeling, yeah, the burning in the face, and I can right. feel it right now. I, I yeah, I can. Yes, I can feel it. And right. as a child, you 
Oh gosh, yeah. that's so young and right. So that, oh. that was my understanding, and that was when shame left my house and it overtook my whole life. It was out in the world, oh. and I couldn't get away from it. So that's when I started to adapt my behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like okay. I don't get to decide anymore. If I'm going to draw a picture, I don't get to decide what that is. I don't get to do things on my own anymore. I have to modify my behavior. I have to walk the straight and narrow. I have to be the good girl. I have to be the perfectionist. And if I can't be perfect at something, I have to put it off and put it off and put it off until I can be perfect at it. I have to practice in private. So I lost my ability to um, fail, you know, like anytime right. I didn't do very well in high school when it came to sports, because the learning process of learning how to play a sport, you have to fall, you have to fail, you have to get hurt, you have to miss the ball, you have to get hit with the ball and, you know, all of this stuff. Right. I didn't have the tolerance, the emotional capacity to tolerate the criticism that came from the coaches or that, you know, whoever was helping me like, no, this isn't how you do it because Mm -hmm. all I could hear was you're wrong. You did it wrong. And so it really affects how as children we receive messages, even if it is meant to be constructive criticism, Mm -hmm. we hear it and we interpret it as you're a horrible person and you shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. So that was one of my adaptations. If I couldn't be perfect at something, I wouldn't do it. And so that's where perfectionism and procrastination become opposite sides of the same coin. And those became some of my adaptive behaviors. And so when I talk about hidden abuse or invisible abuse or invisible Mm -hmm. trauma. Actually, I should call it invisible trauma. There was really no abuse involved because nobody hit me. Nobody hurt me. Nothing like that. Um, I don't even think there was intention to hurt me with what was, you know, what was said, you know, it was, you know, older teenagers, young twenties, young men joking around and having fun. I'm not even sure they had the emotional capacity to realize that it was inappropriate to tell a little kid that joke, just knowing who they were and where they grew up and all of that. So when you take intention and abuse out of the equation, yet trauma still sets in. Mm -hmm. Trauma is not what happened to you. It's what happens inside of you as a result of what happened to you. So that completely settled into my nervous system. And any time moving forward that my nervous system perceived that somebody was teasing me or making fun of me um, or anything like that, I would immediately go into those compensatory behaviors. Can you just repeat that one more time about the trauma? It's not what happens to you. It's not what happens to you. It's a result of what happens inside of you because of what happened to you. It's what happens inside of you. So trauma is anything that limits or constricts your response to a future situation that is similar. Thank you for defining that. You're welcome. I was in a group recently and we were talking about trauma and we went around the room and each of us shared some of our trauma and Mm -hmm. the moderator of the group described it as big T trauma and little T trauma. And I'd never heard that before. Mm -hmm. And one girl said, well, I don't think I have any trauma. I would call BS on that because I think we all have trauma. But anyhow, I'm sorry. (laughs) We totally did. We were like, "Uh, okay, let's just peel back a couple of layers. But we all have trauma. And I'm glad you're talking about 
you call it invisible trauma. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, sometimes really big things happen to us, natural disasters, uh, illness, a death, things like that, that you can say, ah, that's it. That's the point when I became this person. It changed me in this way. And as you know, the title of my podcast is After the Crisis. Mm-hmm. could very easily be called After the Trauma. Yes. But I love what you're saying about the invisible trauma. And how does that impact us? How do we recognize it? And furthermore, how do we identify ways that it has changed us and created perhaps some undesirable behaviors? So one of the ways it impacts us is, you know, like I said, is the compensatory behaviors. Mm -hmm. Anytime that my nervous system, because my nervous system, and this is true for all of us, when we're in a situation usually the feeling happens before the behavior. And sometimes it's just a fraction of a second. But when that feeling comes up of, you know, like I described that feeling of shame, that feeling of, I'm not sure if I can, you know, hold myself up. I feel like I'm falling and I can't catch myself that, and you know, that heat and that hollow feeling in your chest where you just feel like you're collapsing in on yourself. Yes. When that feeling would come up, I would immediately go into my compensatory behaviors. So I wouldn't try new things. I would stop myself. Um, you know, like I said, if I knew that I couldn't be good at it or if I couldn't practice in secret on my own because I couldn't let somebody see the process of me not doing something right um, mm-hmm. or doing it the right way. And, you know, like any type of failure was a blow to my ego. Mm-hmm. And again, it, a lot of it stems back to this being made fun of when I really whittle it down. (laughs) And so that's a way that we compensate. And for the longest time in my life, you know, like through my teenage years, I didn't know that that wasn't normal. I didn't know that that wasn't okay. And I think at some point in our lives, and I was well into my 20s before I started to realize that, you know, there's something really wrong with this. You know, I, I look at my extracurricular activities. I look at my hobbies. I look at the things that I do that I'm, when I'm not at work. And I didn't have a whole lot of hobbies because, again, I didn't have the capacity to learn new skills without going into overwhelming amounts of shame. And you start to realize that there's something not right about this. You know, like... All of my friends have hobbies. You know, yeah, some of my friends might knit, might not be my thing, but they went through the process of learning how to knit. And, you know, that that's not something you pick up the first time you pick up the, the you know, the knitting needles or, or crocheting or, you know, friends of mine who, who did, you know, woodworking, you know, again, not necessarily female friends, but, you know, I, I have friends that I went to high school with that mm-hmm. have, you know, like built their own kitchen cabinets and put additions right. on their own homes, you know, and did all the woodwork and things like that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like, I never learned to do anything like that. And you start to realize that, everybody else has these hobbies and they have these skills or they have these, you know, like they're like craftsmen when they're not being an engineer or an accountant or a lawyer at work, they have these things they do at home. I didn't have any of that. So somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew something was off. I knew that there, there was something wrong with my behavior. I just didn't know what. So Mm -hmm. the first thing to do to start to address it is become aware of it, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
then, you know, again, it took years because I didn't have anybody like me to guide me through this. <laughs> I was right. flying blind at the time. So it took years for me of, you know, like questioning and, you know, going into my avoidant behaviors and, um, you know, and some of my avoidant behaviors, because there are times when it's too painful to be present for ourselves in our own life. And that's oh, where we go, go into, and I don't know if you wanted to bring this up yet, but I'm going to throw it in because it just naturally flows. Yeah. What I call hidden addictions and hidden addictions aren't necessarily like we think of addiction and we think of somebody who drinks alcohol or does drugs. Right. Um, when it comes to addiction, there doesn't necessarily have to be a substance involved. So mm -hmm. my hidden addictions were a lot of behavioral addictions. So mm -hmm. one of my addictions was neediness. And I would reach out to, you know, my friends, my family members, you know, what have you. And every time I would reach out to people because of my lack of self-worth and self-esteem and some of those early core values that feed into my belief systems that feed, you know, the belief systems feed into your thought processes, which affect yeah. your behaviors and that whole domino effect. Yes. Some of those core beliefs that I hadn't identified at that point in my life. Like I'm lo not lovable. I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Those would go into, well, how not consciously, but subconsciously, I would believe that I had to devise a reason to call people. I couldn't just call people just because I was me and because I wanted to talk. So I had to have a reason. So that reason was almost always a problem. Oh, okay. So I had like, oh my gosh, I need to talk to you about this. Or I had an argument with my boyfriend and I don't know what to do. And, you know, some of it was, you know, like trying to get people on my side, mm -hmm. a lot of gossiping, a lot of complaining. And again, those are compensatory behaviors as a result of some of these hidden trauma patterns. Gossiping and complaining are hidden addictions. Interesting. Whenever it's chronic. Right. We all have moments like, okay, this isn't normal. <laughs> I've, got, I've just got a rant for 10 minutes. Okay, yeah. now I can go back to being me. But when it's right. chronic, and we all know those chronic complainers and those chronic gossipers, and it's the person that just sucks the life out of you. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I realized that, oh my God, that's me. <laughs> Yeah, that's eye opening. And, you know, you really have to go inside and face the ugly, ugly parts of yourself to get through some of these dark nights of the soul. And so mm -hmm. becoming aware of these parts of myself and not having any support through it is yes. what sent me to the brink of suicide. That's incredible. Yeah. How old were you when you were coming to these realizations and then discovering these things and not having any place to turn, not having any guidance? How old were you? Oh, gosh. I really started doing this work in earnest in my late 30s. Okay. Really into my 40s. I'm in my late 40s now. So this yes. has been the heart of the work that I've done on myself <laughs> has been through my 40s. And really, it's been most of my life. And at the same time, like find it, being able to put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. As recently as two years ago, I would still go to bed at night. And I wouldn't say at this point I was suicidal. Mm -hmm. It was, I just didn't want to be here. So it's not like I was willing to do anything about it. Um, mm -hmm. I would go to bed at night and just my last thought before I would fall asleep would be, okay, can I just go to sleep? Can this just be it? Can I just be done waking up, please? Wow. And then every morning I would wake up and my first thought would be, all right, here we go again. That's intense. I'm so sorry. And I've had a lot of help 
in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And what has helped me the most was getting out of traditional therapy Mm -hmm. because at one point, and I'm not saying traditional therapy is bad for everybody. Of course. It's not helpful for some of us. Mm -hmm. Again, I was one of those people who came out of childhood and because of my inability to take constructive criticism or criticism in any way, shape or form, I had issues with authority. Mm. So because of my issues with authority, when I was in the treatment room with a psychologist or psychiatrist or whoever my therapist was at the time, there's a power differential in the treatment room. And I was one of those people who, again, with my people pleasing and I had to be perfect and I had to do everything right, Mm -hmm. I caught myself, especially through my 20s and 30s. And this is when the awareness was coming to me. I would leave my therapist's office going, I just lied to her. I spent half that session lying to her and telling her what I thought she wanted to hear, not what was really happening inside of me in a way that would actually help me get better. Wow. So- that realization. So if you're somebody who lies to your therapist, then you might want to like take a step back because mm-hmm. I'm not the only one who's done this. I like, I've talked to other people and they're like, Oh yeah, I've done that. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. Or after a period of time, you feel like, well, certainly I should be getting this by now. So let me right. act the part. Yeah. So it looks like I'm making progress. And it sounds like maybe you did some of that, but on the inside, mm-hmm. you weren't healing. Right. You were not changing those maladaptive behaviors. Not at all. And it was when I started stepping outside of traditional therapy, I got out of the cognitive behavioral therapy because the talk therapy for me just recirculated all of those old feelings. Mm -hmm. And there was nobody helping me with my emotional state or the physiological state that comes with those emotions. And, you know, people talk about negative emotions and I'll be honest, Victoria, I flip and hate the term negative emotions because whenever we have emotions of anxiety or fear or overwhelm or anger, frustration, irritation, that's not negative. That is your body telling you something about how you are currently interacting with your environment. That is feedback and that is information. And if we don't listen to it and if we're constantly drinking to get rid of it, or for me, what helped me was again, you know, reaching out Mm -hmm. to people, having somebody answer that phone and have somebody give me attention because I was so needy for connection and attention that that's how I got it. I would hijack conversations with all my problems. And so if you're telling somebody all your problems, they're more likely to listen to you and stay on the phone with you Mm -hmm. (laughs) because people have that empathy. And again, it also speaks to the emotional state of my friends because their empathy was a little bit distorted. You know, that's, that's what it means that we attract people into our life who are emotionally where we are. So they were just as distorted as I was because they couldn't speak up for themselves and say, okay, Jennifer, I'm not having this conversation with you anymore. I didn't have that person in my life who called me out on my Mm -hmm. bullshit. And it got to the point where, I came to a level of awareness at one point in, you know, in my early 40s where I started to call myself out on my mm-hmm. own bullshit and I just got tired of it. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that's very healthy because and I love what you say about the negative emotions. And I've learned in the past year or two to stop labeling emotions and to stop, you know, whenever I feel 
in my body, when it, just like you talked about, that blueprint that was imprinted who knows when or by what, when my nervous system would go into that state of high alert, you know, I would do anything to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Let me take a drink. Let me go for a run. Let me do something. Yes. Stay busy. Let me let me get this out. Let me move past this. And what yes. you're saying is those things can be traditional, what's called addiction. Yes. Or can manifest as a hidden addiction. I've never heard that term before, hidden addiction, but I think it's very eye-opening. Yeah. And hidden addiction is one that I just kind of made up because I'm not quite sure what else to call it, to be honest. (laughs) And when it comes to addictions, so again, a lot of people have the misconception that addiction requires a substance. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the process of finishing a class right now that's taught by Dr. Gabor Mate, who is an addiction expert out of Vancouver in Canada. Mm -hmm. And according to his definition, and I absolutely love his definition, there are four components to an addiction. The first component is that a person craves it. The second component is that a person finds temporary relief or pleasure from it. So whatever that substance or activity or whatever it is, behavior is, it gives you relief or pleasure in the moment. Mm -hmm. Third aspect is that there are negative consequences as a result of it. Okay. And the fourth aspect is that it still persists because you're unable to give it up. Ah. It doesn't matter what it is. So I love that you mentioned exercise because there are a lot of people out there who are addicted to exercise. Mm-hmm. You crave it, you get relief or pleasure in it. Mm-hmm. And the negative consequences now, and this is where we really have to stop and look at all of our behaviors because exercise is not an addiction for everybody. Mm -hmm. If there are negative consequences, if something happens and you work late and you have to go work out before you go home and see your family and Mm -hmm. it's putting a rift between you and your family, then that would be a negative consequence. Mm -hmm. Now, if that happens once, all right, big deal. If it happens on a regular basis where I can't spend time with my family because I have to go for my run, I can't do this because I have to go work out. If you're unable to give it up, then it's an addiction. Mm -hmm. And when it came to, you know, like calling my friends or, you know, having conversations and like holding people hostage in these conversations. Yes. I, at one point in my life, was unable to give it up. Now, how did I get out of it? People want to ask, because that's how my addiction showed up most for me was through behaviors. Mm -hmm. I've not had what I would consider a substance or a drug or anything like that Mm -hmm. that I couldn't Mm -hmm. walk away from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've had phases in my life where I'd go, you know, several months and I'd be like, I think I'm drinking too much wine. And I would just give it a turkey and not think twice about it. Right. All I had to do was just decide I'm done and I could give it up. No problem. So I don't consider like my wine drinking, for example, in a different because I haven't drank a glass of wine in months. (laughs) Right. Well, it doesn't fit those criteria for you. Exactly. Exactly. The phone calls to the friends, the high drama, constant state of chaos. Exactly. It's always wrong. Yeah, I can think of a few people like that. And I'm wondering if any of our listeners are asking themselves those questions. What are you doing in your life that you crave, that provides Mm -hmm. relief in the moment, that has negative consequences, but you persist in doing it? Right. And one of the biggest problems that we are facing in Western society right now is childhood addiction. Mm. 
so many kids cannot put down their screens. They yeah. can't get out from behind the phone. They can't get out from behind the iPad. And they don't have the adult cognitive capacity to sort through this the way I did because I was an adult when I addressed this. Right, right. And, and our cognitive brain, our neocortex, is not finished and fully developed until we are in our mid-20s. Mm -hmm. I think for women, it's between 23 and 25. And for men, it's like 24. Four and 27 or something 70. like that. <laughs> but we are, we're well into our mid twenties mm -hmm. before our brain is fully, fully developed. And, you know, like teenagers that are tried as adults, you know, like their brains are hardwired to make stupid decisions. Right. And I look back and I can't count how many times as a Gen Xer, I thank whatever power there is that I grew up in, you know, like in the 70s and 80s. Yes. And there was no social media and there was no group texting because, oh, dear God, I don't Thanks. know if I would have survived yeah. childhood looking at, you know, I don't know if I would have survived my teenage years looking at what my childhood was like. Oh, gosh. Is yeah. I, because the added level of social media, again, that's another thing I found myself addicted to was mm -hmm. social media. Mm. And I've really, really backed away from that. Mm -hmm. I don't like the promoting my podcast on social media because when I go on to do my promotions, I still find myself, you know, like losing 30, 45 minutes of time going, damn it, I did yes. it again. So this is yes. still something that I'm not 100% out of. I have mm -hmm. awareness. So when I have awareness, it's like, okay, I shut my laptop and I walk away. Awareness is the first step. Like you yes. Said. Mm -hmm. So I'm not losing hours or days on social media like I did, you know, a few years ago. Right. And at the same time, I do lose chunks of time. Mm -hmm. So I'm working my way out of it. And I don't like the social media promotions and all of that. And I don't know how to get away from that yet. So if any of your listeners know how to promote podcasts and not use social media <laughs> to do it, please call me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. I need help with, you know, so we're all still struggling, but I have the awareness and you have a little kid that doesn't have this awareness and they're completely driven by their emotions. So as soon as you take the iPad away from them, it's no time until the emotions and it's almost like symptoms of withdrawal start to set in yes. without yes. the vomiting, <laughs> you know, from the substance. Mm -hmm. Right. It's very similar. And I don't know, because look, again, looking at my childhood, I know that I would have been suicidal in my teen years if I, I can really, really feel for some of these kids. I can really oh. feel. And I can oh. understand how the suicide rates are climbing for yes. kids as young as eight, nine, 10, 11. Mm -hmm. I, I can understand that. I mean, just the idea of having your life documented mm -hmm. and having to make it gram worthy <laughs> with exactly, all of shopping right? and all of that. And then to put yourself out there exposed and have people commenting on yeah. it. I wouldn't want that now at 49 years old, mm -hmm. let alone going through puberty and adolescence and the breakups with boyfriends right. and arguments with girlfriends. And oh my gosh, no, right. I would love the opportunity to have you back for another episode to discuss just that because, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, I have three older children who came of age during the advent of social media and it was like a tsunami. Mm -hmm. None of us 
none of us were prepared right. for the onslaught of social media. And now my children are in their early 20s and I have an 11-year-old and we are all in agreement that there will be no social media in her life mm-hmm. for a very long time, as long as we can prevent it because they look back and even now they know that they're very wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you said, you know, it's like we all know we're wrapped up in it, but that's such a topic that needs yeah. to be talking about it all the time. Right. Exactly. Really exactly. In my mind, it's a crisis. Right. It's leading to, you know, you talk about the violence and the disassociation in these young children and the suicide rates and you know, what's changed social media. Right. And kids mimic their parents. Yes. So whenever you see a kid that can't look up from the screen, it's highly likely that somewhere there's a parent or a guardian that's very similar. Yes. You know, and you see little kids that have a, their nose in a book all the time. It's highly likely there's a parent somewhere with their nose in a book all the time. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> because they do. Kids mimic their parents. Mm-hmm. And, and this is another thing that leads to addiction and suicidal ideation and some of these epidemic levels of depression and anxiety that we're seeing in our young people mm-hmm. is the disconnection with the parents. Yeah. So, you know, I was talking about how as an infant, I had colic and I was picking up on the stress in the household because uh-huh. there was a lot of stress in my household when I was an infant. It wasn't cognitive. Uh-huh. Um, there have been studies and I don't have the specifics of the study in front of me right now, but there was a study that was done and they were doing EEGs on infants that were six months old. Mm-hmm. And the results of the EEGs accurately showed the mother's emotional state while she was pregnant. Oh. So the emotional state while you're pregnant, if you're in a stressful relationship, if you're in an abusive relationship, if your constant internal state is putting yourself down and thinking that you're not good enough for questioning everything. And I think we all know what that internal state is like Mm -hmm. when we're constantly berating ourselves or comparing ourselves to other people. Mm -hmm. That will lead to a level of anxiety that you could absolutely pass on to your infant. And the longer that the infant is in the womb when the mother is in that state, the more likely the infant's going to come out with some level of anxiety. And some of the stuff that our kids go through, you know, some of our young people who are committing suicide at very young ages or finding themselves addicted to drugs or even trying drugs, it's not about blame and shame. And, you know, we have to start taking blame and shame and guilt and all of that out of the equation because some of these little hidden scenarios where there's this huge disconnect can be what's feeding into it. And we've also started to realize, and, and when I say we, I don't mean to imply that I'm the one conducting research. I'm just kind of reporting yeah. on the research. <laughs> so we're also learning through the research that whenever the mother makes eye contact with the infant, that the infant responds to little micro expressions in the mother's face and even slight constrictions and dilations of the pupil, the infant will respond to because they're just that nonverbal communication that infants do. They, They can't talk. They don't have a cognitive brain. So they're responding and their reality and their perception of the world is very, very different than ours as adults. So when they're not getting like FaceTime with their parents and the mom is looking at the screen and not looking at the infant, she might be holding the infant, but looking at the phone and, you know, rifling through the phone or whatever, there's a disconnect. There's no attachment. Yes. 
And one of our big lessons is learning how we will always do whatever it takes as children, even before we have a cognitive mind, we will do whatever it takes to attach to our parents, which is where some of these compensatory behaviors come in. Right. Because attachment to the parents means our very survival and somewhere deep inside of us in that fight or flight reptilian brain, we know that we have to have our guardians in order to survive in this world. They have to take care of us. So we will always compensate our behavior in order to please or do what we think will please our parents so we can stay in favor with the parents instead of being authentically who we are. Because, you know, I learned again, being authentically who I was and drawing pictures. I wanted nothing more than to have my pictures on the wall. And if that meant drawing a picture and putting it on the wall, that's what I did as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then I started to get in trouble for that. And nobody helped me understand or nobody said here, why don't you paint on this canvas? Nobody said that to me. I just got yelled at and got my ass beat for it. Right. So I learned very young, you don't draw, you don't paint, you don't put your stuff on the wall. You know, so it, it, I compensated my behavior and who I wanted to be authentically as that little girl. Mm-hmm. I buried her deep, deep, deep oh. in order to modify my behavior so I could stay in favor with my parents. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And yeah. And when we can't authentically be ourselves, then that's when we start to bury really deep inside of our psyche, these angers and resentments. Yes. And, you know, and you mentioned somebody in a group that you were in who said that she'd never had trauma. That is also a compensatory behavior. It's called the myth of the happy childhood. Mm-hmm. That's not saying nobody had happy childhoods. Right. The reality is all of us had a mix, mm-hmm. happiness mm-hmm. and sadness and anger and joy. And it was all a mix. Yes. And so if somebody says that they just had a happy childhood, right. it's highly likely that, you know, something happened and they're compensating. And especially if they're, they're in a support group of some sort yes. um, and they're saying that they had a happy childhood, it's highly likely that that was a compensation, you know, where they just kind of buried the truth of what happened to them in order to believe that they had a happy childhood again, because, you know, it's easier to believe that it was great to face the pain of, yeah, deep down, I believe that my parents didn't love me. Right. Deep down, I believe I'm not lovable. Deep down, I believe I'm not worthy. Deep down, I believe Absolutely. I'm stupid. Yeah. And those core beliefs, I think a lot of us really harbored really deep down oh, in that yes. part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I would just love to give your inner child a hug. <laughs> and <laughs> I do that a lot now. <laughs> I've learned to do that too, yeah. to give myself a hug. Yes. And thank you for doing the work that you've done, not only on yourself to find some semblance of authentic living and hopefully some happiness, but also for diving in and being willing to do this kind of hard work with your clients. We're going to wind up soon, but can you tell me a little bit about what it would be like to be your client. Yeah, absolutely. So to be my client, first of all, don't come into a session expecting that we're going to start at one o'clock and end at two. 
(laughs) because I recommend that my clients have a little bit more flexibility than that, Mm -hmm. because I can't guarantee that we're going to get through what we need to get through in an hour or that we're not going to be done in why less than an hour. Everybody's different. What they bring to the table each day is different. And I combine formal training where I've learned different techniques and I'm working on certifications under people like Gabor Mate, Peter Levine. Those are two certifications right now that I'm in the process of wrapping up. Mm -hmm. And in the trauma world, they are huge, huge names in working with the type of trauma that gets imprinted in the nervous system like I've been talking about. And I also, you know, kind of bridge that gap between the science, which is what they present and what I call the woo woo. So I also study shamanism and energy work and some of the more esoteric Eastern type philosophies that have been around for ages. And that type of work requires getting to know the client and I don't guide the client. I don't tell the client what they need to do. I get to know the client. And as I get to know the client and I start to learn more and more about the person, I start to see patterns that they might not notice. Okay. And I help teach people how to stay in their bodies. And what I mm-hmm. mean by that, it's easy to get wrapped up in the story. And people just want to, and this is what happened. And I interrupt a lot. So I might interrupt and say, okay, I hear what you're saying. Is it okay to tell me as you tell this story, you know, about the fight that you had with your husband, tell me what that feels like in your body. Tell me what sensation Mm -hmm. you're noticing. And a lot of times I'll get, well, I feel abandoned or I feel rejected or I just feel completely belittled. I can't believe he said that. Well, abandoned, rejected and belittled are not feelings. So I help people. That's the story you tell yourself. So how do we get beyond the belittlement? How do we get beyond the abandonment? How do we get beyond the rejection to find out like, so my next question would be, how does your body experience abandonment? Like what signals does your body send that you interpret as abandonment? Because that's a perception or an interpretation. It's not a feeling. So I need people to to the feeling and I help them sort through the story they tell themselves as Brene Brown calls it mm-hmm. to get to what really is going on. And when I, we can get to the sensation, like, okay, the abandonment feels like this hollowing out of my chest, or I just feel like I'm collapsing in on myself. You know, like once we get to an actual sensation, I'll ask, is there an emotion attached to it? Because abandonment's not an emotion. So a lot of times, a lot of times it's shame. A lot of times it's sadness. A lot of times it's anger. You know, emotions are very simple, you know, sad, anger, happy, you know, joy, you know, shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So once we can get to an emotion, that's what we can work with is the sensation and the emotion. Mm -hmm. I can't work with the rejection or the belittlement or the abandonment. Right. Right. And they can't either because if I, and that's what my therapist did for years, they reinforced Mm -hmm. that story. The cognitive behavioral therapy reinforced my bullshit story of abandonment (laughs) instead of helping me get beyond it. It wasn't until I stepped outside of mainstream that I really got beyond this. And now that I've been through it myself and I've had a combination of formal training combined with shamanism, I put it all together. So the program is really customized and it's not the same from client to client to client. I customize it for what my client needs. So expect to be interrupted and you're probably going to get angry with me and I'm okay with that. That's incredible work and such honorable work. And thank you. Thank you for doing that and for putting yourself out in the world and for making yourself vulnerable and sharing some of your stories. That's not easy stuff to do. And it's not easy to hear. 
mm-hmm. I have compassion for your story and gratitude that you've done the work and that you're helping others. Yeah, well, thank you. And one thing that I think I'm gifted at, and gosh, why do we do that? Why are we so hesitant to tell what we're good at? Yeah. And we're so great to say, oh, I'm not good at that. Right, all. right. You know, we're so eager to say what we're not good at. One thing I am good at is helping people find the subtleties in their behavior. Mm. And a lot of people don't like the subtleties, but, you know, little tiny subtleties, yeah. you know, in our behavior often are indicators of something much, much bigger, you know, and subtleties we write off as just like personality traits, yes. or little quirks, you know, all of that. He's, he's just quirky like that. Mm-hmm. There's something else going on. Let's, let's look into that. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that. And doing work like that, in my experience, examining those subtleties and those things that I don't know, I just do those things instead of approaching them with contempt and saying, oh, I'm just screwed up, you know, approach Mm -hmm. them with a curiosity and being open to learn. And ultimately, it's a tool. It's a segue to learn to love yourself. Exactly. And I think that's something we all need more of. Yes, exactly. And, you know, curiosity and compassion are the antidotes to judgment and shame. Yes. And so if we're self-judging, We're not being compassionate to ourselves, but if we can be curious about whatever comes up within us, then judgment steps aside, that self-judgment steps aside, if we can be curious about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's not an overnight shift. That is a process. Yes. I still have days where I find myself being really judgmental about myself. Oh, sure. (laughs) That's, yeah, sure. But like you said, little changes, little changes. Yes. And awareness. Oh my gosh. I just can't express how much of importance Mm -hmm. self-awareness is in this whole entire process. Thank you. Well, I've certainly learned a lot today and I hope you will come back. I would love to. I mean, gosh, there's just so many things to talk about and you're a wonderful guest and great conversationalist and just have so much to share and so much to offer. Yeah. I would love to come back. So let me know how I can help. Thank you, Victoria. (laughs) Thanks for listening to After the Crisis with Victoria. For more about me, how I can serve your needs, and links to our special guests, please subscribe to this podcast and visit victoriaenglishmartin.com. Also, come on over to our free Facebook group and join our community, After the Crisis with Victoria. I'm offering access to fun, healthy, and thought-provoking content. Additionally, you'll find exclusive programs, workshops, and one-on-one coaching. Until next time, count your blessings, not your burdens. And remember, there is life after the crisis.